All right. Uh, there's a couple two-parters that are supposed to be going on tonight. One was, uh, and there's a two-parter coming next Sunday, the second part of Signs of the Times. It's only a two-part series. Uh, we looked at the first part, and there's a lot of excitement about that. And, but uh, 4th of July, I want to do something a little bit different, which we did on what it meant, means to be set free, amen, from sin. And it's not just to be set free from what? The penalty of sin, but what? Also the what? The power or practice of sin, amen? And eventually we'll be uh, set free from the very presence of sin, amen? Can you imagine that? You know, it'd be great if there wasn't all kinds of just crime all around all the time. You'd have to lock your doors and you didn't have to guard yourself, but you can just greet one another with a holy hug or kiss or however that's going to work in the new heaven, new earth. That'll be pretty cool, amen? And then we also had a part two of 1 Peter 3.15 coming up, uh, which was, you know, ready to be ready always with an answer for those who ask about the hope that's in you. Uh, we do a little bit more on that. So this one is part two of Sunday's message, which was about being set free in Christ, what it means to be set free. If you did not hear part one, I really encourage you to hear part one. I've, I got a text from uh, Ted uh, Walker from Israel and Linda, and he was just so fired up because he loved, they love the truth. And he's like, man, that was a great message on Romans 7. And we're sending it to everybody. It's an eye-opener. And, uh, and I praise God because they love the Lord. They want to see God's people walk with him. And they know, as I know, that a lot of people use Romans 7 as a license to be in rebellion to God. Because Paul speaks there of his past life before he knew Christ in what's called the historical present. In the present tense, as though if you didn't know better, you just isolated the passage where it's in the historical present, and we'll talk about the historical present and what that means and so forth later, you could be led astray to think, oh, wow, Paul is a slave to sin still. He's still under the law of Moses trying to keep the law. Is that Paul? No. Paul is not trying to keep the law of Moses. In Romans 7, he's talking about how he was, and he's not trying to uh, keep the Old Testament law because he understands he's under the new covenant law, the law of Christ. He also understands, and he makes it very clear if you read Romans 6 and 8 along with 7 and the context of chapter 7, that Paul is actually set free from a life of rebellion against the Lord. But he talks about his struggle with sin when he became aware of the law of Moses as a child and how he had no power to overcome uh, the sin in his life. But as Christians, we now have power from the Holy Spirit, amen, that we can live a life that pleases God. So, Father, we do pray that you'd open up our hearts and give us hearts for you. So it's important that you understand and understand the context of this passage. Now, I don't want to retrace all the steps I made last Sunday. I'm tempted to retrace a lot of them. But I'll retrace just a couple throughout the course of this. This will almost all be new information. But I will point this much out. I point out last time that even though the radio preachers you commonly hear treat Romans 7 as though this is the normal Christian life that Paul's describing and Paul's describing himself— that's not uh, how Pauline scholars, the majority of Pauline scholars by far, by and large, know, they understand uh, that Paul is speaking of his past life before he came to Christ. Some look at it as though Paul is using the rhetorical I and describing the Jew under the law, not necessarily himself specifically. I believe when you look at verses 9 through 11, uh, chapter 7, I was once alive apart from the law, and when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. Uh, for sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. 
and through it killed me. That's, I can't take that anything besides biographical, you know. Paul's going to bring this back to his childhood, what he went through. And of course, uh, he basically is a picture of what happens to every Jew under the law, right? When he becomes aware of the law and every human being who has a conscience, which is all of us, some people sear that conscience. That's how you get serial killers or pathological, you know, folks, because they sear that conscience. The Bible warns about searing your conscience, you know, and you can do that, you know, and, uh, in the message on First Peter that we're going to get back to, second part two of that, we're going to talk about the conscience and so forth and what the Bible says about the conscience. The Bible has a whole lot to say about the conscience. It's very important that we, we have a, a healthy conscience. God bless you. Uh, so, uh, and a good immune system, right, Doug? Let's praise the Lord. Uh, so it's important that we also understand the context again. So let's go back and read some of Romans 7 that we didn't last Sunday. So, it's, you know, we get it a, 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 an enhanced perspective. Again, you can't really understand Romans 7 appropriately until you understand what other chapters? Romans what? 6 and what? And 8. Because in Romans chapter 6 and Romans chapter 8, what do you see with Paul? What does he talk all about? Yep, the victory. The victory we have in Jesus. The victory we have in the gospel. And a total contrast to Romans 7 when he's going back into his childhood describing what it was and what it meant to be under the law. So in Romans chapter 6, Paul is very clear that sin shall not reign in your mortal body. Amen? And that you're not to give your, the, the members of your body, the instruments of your body, over to sin. Amen? But we should have victory over sin. That's Romans 6 is perhaps the strongest chapter on that concept uh, in the entire Bible. <laughs> and it comes right before Romans chapter 7. And Romans chapter 8 is perhaps the strongest chapter on how the power of the Holy Spirit gives us victory over sin. Amen? So if you ignore the context, you just plop down in Romans 7, and you don't read all of Romans 7 in context, you don't keep the context in mind, you can get led astray really easily. So in Romans 7, after Paul dictates, or states, I should say, that verse 20 of chapter 6, for when you were slaves, in the past tense, right? You were slaves of sin. You were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, verse 21 of chapter 6, Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. Romans, see, they're not involved in that anymore. Verse 22, But now have you been what? Freed from sin and enslaved to God. We're no longer slaves to sin and slaves to unrighteousness. For now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. For the wage of death, wage of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now remember, there's no chapter breaks. So when he gets chapter 7, when he's writing, he's not writing big 7 there, you know. He, then he goes on to state, Or do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law. So he's speaking to Jews who'd be reading this and Jewish believers and Gentiles who understood the law of Moses? Or, uh, or you do not know, brethren, for I am speaking with, uh, to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. So when a person's alive, a Jewish person is alive, that hasn't come to Jesus yet, the law of Moses has jurisdiction over them. They're under that law, okay? They're under the law of Moses. 613 or so commandments, thou shalt and thou shalt not, keeping the Sabbath, you know, all kinds of dietary laws, you know, 
sacrificial laws, all kinds of laws, kosher laws. For the married woman, now he gives an illustration of a married woman. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. So she has to stay with her husband. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So she might be married to a guy that's, you know, kind of a mean-spirited guy. But she's bound to that marriage while he's alive. Then verse 3. It says at the end of verse 2, but she's released from the law concerning her husband when? If her husband what? If her husband dies. Amen? So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. So if her husband's alive still, and she's married, and she goes and sleeps with another man, she'll be called an adulteress, okay? Unless, of course, according to what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5, rightfully dividing the word truth, and in Matthew chapter 19, there was biblical grounds for divorce, right? But here it says she shall be called an adulteress, but if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is, no, she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man, this is important. What's his point? Look at verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law. Through the what? The body of Christ. So that you might be joined to, one an- to another, to him, who was raised from the dead. In order that we might bear fruit to who? To God. So here's his analogy. A woman is married to a man. You know, they, they make the covenant till death do us part. Uh, they're together. She's bound to him. Okay? She can't marry another guy. He dies, she's a widow now, she's free to remarry. Well, guess what? You Jews, he's saying, I'm speaking to those Jews, you were once married to who? God through the law. They were once married to the law. The law was their old mate. The law of Moses. They had to keep all those laws. But those laws, what? Condemn them, right? Because they broke those laws. And the wage of sin we just read at the end of chapter 6 is what? Death. That's what we get. That's the fine we pay is death because we're all dying right now, right? Because we, oh, we all broke the moral law that's written in our hearts. But they had a codified law that went beyond the moral law. The law of Moses had other laws too. And they're, de- they're, they're in trouble. They're married to a mate and they're under the death penalty because of their marriage. Because they can't keep the law. Until Christ died on the cross. Paid for their sins. Amen. And Romans chapter 6 very clearly says that we died in him. We were crucified with him. Amen. So when he died for our sins... We what? We identify with his death and we say, that was death for me. Amen? When we're baptized, we go into the water. We say, oh, that's a picture of my death that Christ died for me. I entered into, in faith in him, I entered into relationship with him. So the death that he paid was for all my sins. So that old man who I was and all that debt I owed, he paid. And that old man who I was is now what? Dead. Amen? We've died. Because of what Christ did for us and us to identify with his death for on our behalf, the fine is paid. Therefore, the law, like that ex-husband, no longer has power over us. Do you understand that? Because now we're married to who? It's a metaphor. We're married to who? Christ. Amen? So we have a new relationship and we can't be condemned by the law of Moses now since we're now married to Christ. Amen? By, by the way, isn't that a really great passage when you're talking to uh, say, for instance, someone that's in the Hebrew Roots Movement and thinks they have to keep the law of Moses to be right with God. Or say a Seventh-day Baptist or a Seventh-day Adventist who thinks they have to keep the Sabbath, which was never given to the church, was given to the Jews. 
And the Bible says in Jeremiah chapter 3 in the Old Testament that God would bring a what? A what? A new covenant. Amen. We're now under a new covenant, a new contract, a new covenant. We're no longer under that old covenant and judged by the law of Moses. Are you with me? It's just beautiful. So understand from the get-go Paul's argument here. Amen. Before you get in the rest of Romans 7, understand he's saying that we are not under the what? what under, not under the law. Amen. That's important because in verses 5 and 6, in verses 5 and 6, he kind of uses these next two statements you read in verses 5 and 6 as kind of a summary statement of what he's going to explain. Look at verse 5. For while we were in the flesh, he's talking about the past when they were under the law. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear the to bear fruit for what? Death. I love it. He just kind of sums it up. When we were in the flesh, in our past lives, that's before we came to Christ, our sinful passions were being worked up by the law. And by the way, it's interesting. In one sense, the law brings the knowledge of sin in Romans 7. Okay? But it doesn't just bring the knowledge of sin. So some people just understand it that way. Yeah, you become aware of the law, you, become, you get the knowledge of sin, and then you die when you're, as you get older. Boom, man, I'm doomed. But the actual Romans 7 actually teaches that the law actually instigates more sin in us. Isn't that interesting? Not, not that the law is bad. The law is good. But because we're rebellious and we have a fallen nature, when we hear the law, guess what? In our mind, we want to do what's right. Part of us does. But there's another part of us that gets rebellious under the law. If you tell a little kid that's nearing puberty hey, there's dirty magazines over there. I saw them when we passed them that some kid must have hid there. Don't go over there and look at those dirty magazines. Would you rather say that to him or would you rather just pass them up and not even tell them they're there? I wouldn't even tell them they're there. I'll just walk by because I don't want to arouse his flesh. Okay, because you know what I'm saying? So it's kind of interesting that, that the law is holy. What I'm saying is right, but the flesh is fallen. So he says here, for while we were in the flesh, this, now he's talking about his past tense, right? The sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. Verse 6, but, contrast, but, now we have what? Been what? Released from the law, having died to that which we were bound, like the, you know, the person that dies when they're married to someone, so that we serve what? In newness of the spirit, and not what? In oldness of the letter. So the only time you're going to see the Spirit mentioned is in verses 5 and 6 here because he's going to leave off and start talking about his past life under the law. Verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So the law isn't bad. He just became aware that Wow, I wouldn't have known what was wrong unless I was given the law, right? You might be going fast. How many have gone pretty quick when you're traveling way out in the boonies and it's just open road, right? And all of a sudden you get to a, a neighborhood or a, you know, a little tiny town that's just a real quick blip. And all of a sudden, if there's no cars in front of you, you don't realize the speed limit went down to like 25, 30 miles an hour. And you were going like 65, 70 or something. And all of a sudden it's like, I've, I've, I'm like, whoa, man. Did you pay attention, Joe? You know? Because all of a sudden you're hauling through a neighborhood or a town. 
That's illegal. It is dangerous. But I don't know uh, if no signs are posted at all, period, that the speed limit's been reduced. I don't know. Can they hold that against you? There's no signs at all that say it's against the law to go faster than, I don't, I don't know how that works. They probably, they, there has to be a sign. Okay, well, I'll tell you what. I don't know how true that is, but I expect that. But either way, you'd have a good case in a, in a, in a, in a, in a law court, right, to say, I didn't know, you know, until I hit the guy in the, you know, in the back and everybody, you know, and there was a, bit, a lot of traffic there. Well, that'd be wrong. It'd be, then, you'd be, then you'd be busted because the guy would stop. But the point is this. You become aware of the law, then you become culpable. We used to always, I used to live up First Street, just past, you know, when you go up First Street uh, and you pass the road tracks. And I used to live in that neighborhood. My mom just sold that house just about a year ago or so. And when I lived in that house, we would take off from Ahar Street, go downhill. It would turn into another street, Agnew, I guess. And we just just haul down there. And then you'd be headed toward First Street where the traffic was. And you'd have to slow down because you're really jamming downhill on your bikes. So we would also take the sidewalk around. So you have to make sure you can make that turn because otherwise you're going right into traffic. But the cool thing is the Otzes lived there. The Otz had this house where it's a corner lot. And guess what? There was a trail right through the middle of the yard, man. You could just take that and you'd have to go through the sidewalk. And I just thought it was just perfectly okay because we just all took that trail right through their yard. We just thought it was sanctioned. Till one time I saw a sign there they put up, stay off our yard, right? A couple signs. Our rebellious nature, well, you always go across this thing. It's dangerous to go that way. No, just slow down. But we didn't. We just went. This was my friend Takio, who a really cool guy. I went to junior high school with him. We hung out off and on. And, and by the way, I just found a, a few years ago, I don't know, five years ago, he, he called in and said he listened to the message. I'm like, wow, a blast from the past, you know. Anyway, uh, Takio, if you're listening right now, you're forgiven of this because I know you love Jesus now. But uh, we found these like spiked strips, you know, nails, nails in these little strips that were under the earth right there, right? And they were meant to puncture your tires. I remember Taki was all upset. He's ripping them out. How could they put them here, you know? And I, part of me was thinking, well, it is their yard, you know. There's a sign there. And, but the point is this. Now, when I went across that yard, I had a guilty conscience because I knew it was wrong. And when little kids are like crying and wanting everything and so forth, they might even get a little spanked, but they don't have enough conscience to understand, you know, the moral law of God, the difference between right and wrong, until they get a little bit older. And Paul deals with that with regard to the law. He goes on to say, verse 8, but sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind. You see how the commandment brought coveting of every kind? For apart from the law, sin is what? Dead. Sin has no effect on us. When we're little kids, sin is dead. We don't even understand it. We haven't broken God's moral law. We're not held accountable. So if a little kid, or if if an adult, you know, goes up and takes a $100 bill off of someone's table they're visiting, puts it in their pocket, and leaves, that'd be kind of stealing. If a two-year-old kid's, 
you know, reaches, is, it, it comes with some folks and he's eating at this, you know, in the high chair and there's a hundred dollar bill sticking there. And it's just interesting. He sticks it, he sticks it in his diaper. You think he's going to get busted? Think he'd be held accountable in the same way? No, because he has no idea what he's doing is wrong. Okay. Now it's interesting because verse nine, Paul says, I was once, now this is important. I was once what? Alive apart from the law. So I want you to see three phases that Paul goes through. I was once what? Alive, apart from the law. This is, there's a lot of heavy stuff in Romans 7 because this helps us understand the doctrine of original sin and how it should really be parsed and understood. Catholics say the doctrine of original sin means that we're all sinners, we're all born in sin, and we all have the guilt of sin. And Augustine and the early Roman Catholics taught that if you died even as a baby, you went to hell because you're spiritually dead. You have no future unless you're baptized in the Roman Catholic Church. That doesn't sound like God, by the way. I just happened to go to a Catholic, belong to a Catholic family and they dipped me when I was a baby. Now I'm in heaven. That's ridiculous. I'm in hell forever because I was born to a family that wasn't Catholic. That's ridiculous. The Bible doesn't teach that concept of original sin. The Bible does teach original sin in this context that we are born with a sinful nature. Okay, you just look around the world and there's no saints walking around that are perfect. Amen? There's nobody, you just, and I tell people, if you want to debate whether people have a sinful nature or not when they're young, just do child care for one day. Okay, you'll see that come out of little kids. And grown-ups that are doing all these evil things, that was, that came, they came with that package. You know? We just, the Bible says they come from, forth from the womb speaking lies, the book of Job. David said, I was conceived in sin. I mean, by nature, babies are me, 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 my, 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 right? And hopefully they learn not to be like that as they get older. But apart from Christ coming to our hearts, it's hard to not be like that. In fact, you can never overcome sin that way without Christ. So Paul says here, I was once alive apart from the law. He's talking about spiritually. We're all alive physically apart from the law, but he saw it spiritually. He was once alive apart from the law. So when Paul was a little guy, he was alive spiritually. He wasn't spiritually dead. Yeah, we have a sinful nature. We're born in sin. That's original sin. Original sin is not original condemnation that every little baby's condemned. Jesus said to the little children, let the little children come to me, for of such is the what? Kingdom of God. They belong to God. Little baby dies, he goes right to be with the Lord. But as we get older and older, we become aware of the moral law of God. We hit a certain age where we become accountable. That's what the Jews had with regard to the bar mitzvah at the age of 13. Although we don't put an age on it because that age could come sooner or later for people at different times, different kids at different times. The point here is, and you don't want to miss this, Paul is talking about one specific commandment in this context that he became aware of. Does anybody remember the, the law that he brought up in verse 7 that he broke? Or the law that he, for I would not have known the end of verse 7 about what? Covening if the law had not said, you shall not covet. And that commandment in the Old Testament, in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, is broader than just, it's not, not coveting someone's wife. It's not, not coveting their property and so forth. And that's the law that got Paul. Not that he didn't break any other law. I'm sure he did. But he's specifically using that law as the commandment that he broke when he became, he said, I was once alive apart from the law. Look at verse 9. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the what? 
the commandment came, and it's in the singular. I checked it out in the Greek. When the commandment came, he's specifically talking about coveting. Sin became what? Alive. Because sin was dead. He had, had no power over him. Sin became alive, and I what? I died. That's what happened to each and every one of us. Okay? We were alive. That's a phase of our lives. We were born alive to God. I believe we had the Holy Spirit in us, living in us, just as John the Baptist did, and he kicked when he was in his mother's womb when Jesus was conceived. And that sometime in our lives, as we became aware that we were doing wrong, we had a sense of guilt, and we did it anyway, we died, whatever that commandment was that we broke. With kids, a lot of times the first one is coveting, taking something that doesn't belong to you, or lying or something like that. And by the way, a lot of these commandments fit into coveting. A lot of the other commandments, there's a form of coveting. Not all of them, but some of them. Now, it's interesting. You see two phases of Paul's life. He was what? Alive, but then he what? Died. When he became aware of the what? Law. So what was Paul doing? Paul has already begun to explain to us in the first few verses, first four verses, that we were bound to the law, right? The Jews were bound to the law. As long as, you know, they were alive to the law, and law was alive to them, and they were alive to sin, and it was like a marriage then. If one dies, you're not bound to it again, and guess what? We died in Christ, so we're not under the law anymore. But what's Paul doing now? Paul's going back in time to explain what happened to him. Are you with me? He's not talking about what's going on in his life right now. He's going back in time. Verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive, and I died. That's all of us. That's, and after we died spiritually, then we found out eventually that you need to be what? To enter the kingdom of God. Jesus said, no, you must be what? Must be born again. Amen? You have to have new life. John 3.3, 3, John 3.5. Jesus says you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. You must be born, he said, of water and of spirit to, be, to enter the kingdom of God and to see the kingdom of God. And we had to come to spiritual life again. So we've embraced Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. We've been forgiven of our sins. We are alive again now. So we've all been through three phases. There was a time in your life when you were dead. I'm sorry, you were alive, amen? Then you what? Died, that's your second phase. Then you came to Christ and you're now what? Alive again spiritually, amen? It's beautiful. That's what Paul's describing. So Paul's describing what it means to be dead and this whole transformation. Now he says, I died. He doesn't come back to life yet. He's not explaining. He's talking about his past. He's not talking about his present, even though he's going to be using present tense verbs pretty soon. Verse 10. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in what? Death for me. Because if you obey his commandments, you have life. But guess what? Nobody could do it perfectly. So it brought death to him. Verse 11. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So then the law is holy. And the commandment is what? Holy. Notice, notice, by the way, he died. It's in the past tense, verse 10, verse 8. It's in the past tense, the Greek as well. Look at that the law killed him, verse 11. That's in the past tense too, just like it is in the English. It's in the past tense of the Greek. So then the law is holy, Paul says, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. He wants them to understand. He's not saying the law is bad. The law is good. It's us that are bad. It's like today, a lot of people get upset with the law, Right? They get in trouble, and they get all ticked off at the laws. You can just erase all. Now, man-made laws aren't perfect, but a lot of them are good, and they reflect a lot of the laws of God, right? But people get all bent out of shape because of the laws. And, but if you got rid of all laws, what would you have? 
anarchy. You wouldn't have to worry about prisons. You don't have to have prisons because everybody would just be dead. Said a few people that were still alive after it was all over. It's ridiculous. Verse 13. Therefore did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather it was sin. That's, we're the problem. In order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through which is good. So that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. So God's holiness and his commands want, are meant to show us we're really sinful. We need to be saved. Amen? We need to come to Christ. Verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. Now, isn't that interesting? I want you to catch something. I want you to catch something. Paul here subtly turns to the present tense. But he's not talking about having become a Christian yet, coming to Christ yet. That doesn't happen until verse 24 and 25. He's just making it more vivid for the sake of vividness to be dramatic as to how powerful this is, okay? Verse 13, watch. Because uh, before this, he was talking in the past tense. But he says, therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it is sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by what? Affecting my death through that which is good. Do you know that's in the present tense in the Greek? But is he talking about presently right now or is he talking about the past? Let's be honest. He's talking about the what? The past. He's talking about what he went through when sin what? Killed him. That's the whole context here. He hasn't talked about, he went from death, I'm sorry, he went from life to what? Death. There's nothing here about him coming back to life again and becoming a Christian. He's talking about himself under the law of Moses. So that through the commandment, sin would become what? Utterly sinful. Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold in bondage to sin. Now, Paul is talking as one who is under the what? Verse 14. He's under the what right here? Under the law. Is Paul really under the law when he writes this? Yes or no? No. Paul just said in the first few verses of Romans 7 that we are what? Free from the law. Amen? Are you with me? So please understand that because 90-some percent of professing Christians that are just listening to a lot of radio and stuff and don't study the scripture in context, they think, oh, look at Paul's talking about this. He lives a wicked life. I guess I can. No, that's not the context. He said we're not under the law, but he's going back to when he was under the law and how the law killed him. Are you with me? For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh, sold in the bondage of sin. Is Paul in bondage to sin in Romans 6? Is he a slave to sin in Romans 6 and Romans 8? No. He's talking about his past. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. He's still talking as one that's under the law, which he's not under the law after this, after he gets saved. But he's using the present tense to make it more vivid. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Because in his mind, he wants to do what's right. But he didn't have the power to do what's right. Because his sin nature, he's just so fallen, and he can't overcome sin in his own power. Verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. Uh, for, he says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing good is not. By the, well, by the way, does nothing good dwell in Paul after he gets saved? No, something really good, the Holy Spirit dwells in him. He's talking about before he was saved. Verse 19, for the good that I want, I do not do. I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if 
I am doing the very thing I do not want. I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Verse 21, I find then a principle that evil is present in me. By the way, if we ever go through the book of Romans, we'll just be going a couple verses at a time probably. But we're going through, we're looking at the forest and not just the trees here. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, verse 21, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur, concur with the law of God in the inner man. And some say, oh, well, Paul must be saved there because you don't want to do God's will unless you're saved. That's not true. Go ahead and read what Paul says in Romans 11, 10 through 11. He says the Jews have a what for God? A zeal for God. You can have a zeal for God and be lost. A lot of people do. They just aren't saved yet. They need to find Jesus. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. Verse 23. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. So Paul is totally talking about as one who's under the law. And he's writing, keep in mind the context, to those who know the law. He's talking about how he was alive and then he was killed when he became, came under the jurisdiction of the law. He became a slave to the law under the jurisdiction of the law and he was doomed. Verse 24, what's the conclusion when you're under the law and you can't have power to keep it? Wretched man that I am. Wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from the body of this death? You end up, you either stay there and you are a hypocrite, you pretend that you're a righteous person when you really, you know, you got a lot of problems inside. Or you're like, man, I'm messed up, man. I need God. I need to be saved. I need to be forgiven, right? And I need to have strength from the Holy Spirit, God's power, to help me overcome this sinful nature that I struggle with, okay? And Paul came to the conclusion, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? What's the answer? Verse 25, thanks be to God through who? Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul says in Galatians that the law leads us to what? Christ, amen. What did, the, what did the law do for Paul when he was under it? Led him where? Let, it, it killed him, amen. But then it led him to despair, amen. He couldn't keep it. Then it led him to anguish and conviction to where he knew he needed help. So he cried out, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? What was the answer? Christ. Jesus. He says it. He gives us the answer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now it's important to understand that that's, now there's a transition. First we see Paul is what? Apart from the law, before he becomes aware of the law, he's what? Alive. Then he becomes aware of the law and he's under the law and he what? Dies. It kills him. He dies. Then he lives under the law, but he has no victory, right? Until he what? Cries out, wretched man that I am. Remember Jesus talked about those two dudes that went into the synagogue? And one was a Pharisee. He, was, he appeared righteous to everybody. He was a religious leader. Probably had all the garb on and everything. And, he, and then the, the, the poor sinner man was in the synagogue. said he couldn't even lift his head to heaven. He just was like, man, I'm a mess. And then the Pharisee was like, man, I'm glad I'm not like that sinner over there. I fast two times a week. I give to the poor. Started saying all these good things about himself. And then Jesus said, but the, the, the poor sinner, he couldn't even lift up his head. And he beat his chest and he said, forgive me, you know, wretched man that I am, you know, basically is what he said. Forgive me, I'm a sinner, he says. But it's a lot like what Paul says here in Romans 7. And Jesus said, which one of those two left right with God? Which one left right with God? 
Jesus said, the guy that was humble, God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. Because the Pharisee wanted to pretend he was righteous, but inwardly, Jesus said they were like dead man's bones. They're like a grave. They look good on the outside, but they're stinking bones on the inside, and they need to be born again. And the religious people didn't want to come to Jesus because they wanted to put a parade on and say, hey, yeah, we're righteous. You know? But this guy came to Jesus. Uh, this guy received forgiveness of sins. And that's what happens with Paul here. He makes a transition. So he, first he's alive, then he dies. He's under the law, the law of sin. By the way, what does it call it? Look at the end of verse 5. Or read all verse 25 with me again. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay? Then he brings up the argument again, talking about how he was under the law. So then, on the one hand, I myself, with my mind, am serving the law of God. That's when he was under the law. But on the other hand, with my flesh, the law of what? Sin. So Paul was serving the law of sin when he was under the law. Even though it was his mind, he's trying to keep the law of God, but he can't be victorious. So he's serving the law of sin. Until Jesus came. And then in Romans 8, there's not a chapter where Paul didn't say 8, like it's a new chapter. He just kept writing. And look what he says here. Verse 1. Therefore, there is now no what? Condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law, now this is, this is huge. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you what? Free from what? The law of sin and of death. Ha! Romans 7 is about how Paul was alive and free, then dead and under the law of sin and death until he cries out to Jesus. Amen? And when it says, then in verse, chapter 8, the first couple of verses, he is set free from the trap of Romans 7 where he has a old man, the sin nature. He has an old master, the law. He has an old mate, that wife that he can't leave. He's still alive. Or the wife with the husband, which is the law. He's doomed. But he cries out to Jesus. He gets saved. He gets forgiven. And not only does he get forgiven to where he's no longer condemned by God because Christ paid for his sins and declared you're declared righteous. You're, you will not be condemned. He's justified. But not only that, now he has the power of the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 8. Now he has the power of the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 8 to not only be set free from the penalty of sin, but to have strength to overcome the power and practice of sin. Where now he doesn't, he's not just grabbing other people's stuff anymore or whatever he was doing when he was a little kid and fell under the law. He could say, well, you know what? I just trust God. Thank you, Lord. You're going to meet my needs according to your riches and glory. And Jesus taught me to pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And part of that prayer is, you know, give us this day our daily bread. I'm going to trust you, Lord. I'm not going to take somebody else's stuff. I don't need it. And you've given me a new heart. I want to bless people now. I want to pray for people. I want to encourage people. I want to give things to people now instead of taking things from them. Amen. God changes our hearts. Amen. Even though inwardly Paul wanted to be like that before he was a Christian, but he'd have the power to overcome it. And some people are stronger in certain areas than others before they're born again. But when we're born again, we have strength to overcome all sin. Amen. Now, we don't avail ourselves perfectly of that strength because we all still fall short, okay? But we go up to the plate and we try to bat a thousand every time, amen? And we, we do way better now that we have Christ. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, let's talk a little bit about uh, the present tense that Paul uses there. I wanted to actually take you through it so you could see that Paul was still speaking, even though he went to the present tense, to make it more vivid to us that he was still talking about how it was under the law, before he found Christ. Amen? And we saw that, so I think that's important. But I want you to understand that Paul, and it happens a lot actually in the New Testament, not just with Paul, but others, where the present tense is used of a past event, okay? 
We do that all the time for the sense. You read, when, if you read a newspaper, if you read a good journalist, or if you read a, a good, good author, they'll bring something in the present tense, even though it's something that happened in the past for effect, right? Like let's say one of my daughters, you know, I'll use Josiah since I'm, I can see him right there. Josiah won the spelling bee, right? He was on ESPN, you know, and he won the spelling bee. He's a pretty good speller. I don't know if he'd win a spelling bee on the ESPN. I don't know if they even still do that. They used to have that on. And I say, yeah, man, he came back with a trophy. It's pretty cool. Well, what happened? Oh, man, it got really gnarly. And then all of a sudden I start saying, so he gets this, this really hard word, right? And he, and he pronounces, he's pronouncing this word. And as he's pronouncing it, he says it wrong. And I'm like, oh, no, as he's saying it, he, he, he says this word wrong. I'm thinking, man, he's going to blow it. But then he spells it perfectly, and then he, as he spells it perfectly, the, somebody jumps up, and when they jump up, and, and I'm explaining this in the, in the, in the present tense, because it's more vivid that way. I can say, oh, and then what happens? The guy got really excited. You can explain it that way, too, but we do that all the time. And it's called, in, uh, it's called the word, there's a, uh, it's hypotyposis, is a word by def, the definition in Webster's is, uh, de, is a vivid picture, uh, a description, uh, collinsdictionary.com. Uh, hypotyposis definition is a figure of speech by which something not present is represented as though present. Okay? And it's interesting, John Fletcher, who was a, a Wesleyan theologian, John Fletcher correctly uh, assesses Romans 7 being a hypotyposis, and he says this, it is the figure of a hypotyposis, so-called in rhetoric, by which writers use the present tense to relate to things past or to come to make narration more lively it is saint paul's past in the present tense he's talking about romans chapter 7 now it's interesting because listen to this this is uh daniel b wallace and i've used daniel b wallace's greek grammar at times there's different greek grammars but uh, this is his greek grammar beyond the basics and he explains this it's also called a historical present okay a historical present what would we historical? Something that's past in history, but pre presented in a present tense context. So you could understand it more vividly. And here's how uh, Dr. B. Wallace, who's one of the most respected Greek uh, writers on Greek grammar, and is beyond the basics, on page 531, he says this, the historical present is used fairly frequently in narrative literature to describe a past event. He says the reason for the use of historical present is normally to portray an event vividly as though the reader were in the midst of the scene as it unfolds. That's what Paul's doing in Romans 7. Talking about his past under the law, but presenting it in the present at a certain point. The present tense may be used to describe a past event either for the sake of vividness or to highlight some aspect of the narrative. Now, the, the another Greek lexicon, the Greek word study lexicon concordance states this. Listen to this. Some phrases which might be rendered as past tense in English will often, will often occur in the present tense in Greek. Did you catch that? These are termed historical presents. And such occurrences dramatize the event described as if the reader were the watching the event occur. Some English translations. Now I think this is interesting when I read this. This is very interesting because I actually found some of these English translations that do that. In fact, right here in Romans 7. Some English translations render such historical presence in the English past tense. You catch that? It's saying sometimes an English translation of the Greek, like right here in the Greek New Testament, 
We'll take a historical present, meaning something that's presented as present, even though it's something that happened in the past. It will, it will historical present in the English, past, translate into the English past tense. So you'll be reading something where you won't know it's in the, in the present tense, in the Greek. But they'll translate it in the past tense, even though it's in the present tense, because they're like, well, we're writing the, you know, we're translating for Greek readers. I'd rather have it written exactly how it's meant to be read in the Greek and then draw my own conclusion. I'm going to show you an example where in Romans, where scholars and translators know it's a historical present and it's written in the present tense, but he's Paul speaking of his past right here in Romans 7. But they translate it as though he's speaking in the past, some translators, even though they know he's speaking of the present because they don't want people to get confused. I'd rather let people get confused and have to study the scripture and come to the conclusions of interpretation instead of having the NIV, and that's one that does that, do that for me, although the NIV is very good in certain areas. So it says, some English translations render such historical presence in the English past tense, while others permit the tense to remain in the present, like the NASB does, because the NASB is a more liberal, or a more, not liberal, a more literal translation. Let me give an example of this. Romans chapter 7, verse 13. Paul, in the middle of this verse, is going to talk about his death occurring. Does it sound like he's talking in the English about in the present tense or the past tense? A little study for us, right? People come to this church and are like, what did I sign up for, man? These guys get into it. Yeah, well, we, we need to get into it. Romans seven thirteen. Therefore, did that which is good become cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by what? Now, it's going to say, is this in the present tense that he's writing or past? By effecting my death through that which is good, right? He's speaking in the present tense. Look at that. In order that it might be shown to be sin by effecting my death through that which is good. He's not saying it affected my death, but it is affecting his death. He's writing the present tense. So that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. That's all, that's all in the present tense. And it's written in the present tense in the Greek. So the English is a faithful translation to the Greek, which the New Testament was written in, in the NASB. Now follow this. Guess what? The King James Version translates the key word death there and what's going on there in the present tense accurately. Listen to this. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. But sin that it might appear sin working Working, not worked. Working, present tense. It's, it's accurate. It's translated the Greek. Working. That's a katagazo uh, mene. Working, present tense participle. Death in me by that which is good. That sin, the sin of, the, I'm sorry. That sin by the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. So that's the accurate translation, the King James. But guess what the new King James did? It took that verse and it said, hmm, yes, Paul's writing the present tense about him being, him dying spiritually, but he already talked about that and it happened in his what? Past. Do you understand? So in the new King James, let's make it more consistent with him talking about his past because we all know this is a historical present. It's really talking about what happened in the past not what Paul's going through right now. So let's just translate it consistently with how English readers read things because we don't use historical presences as much as the Greek or those that write in Greek. So listen to the New King James Version. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me. 
Come on, guys. What's that in? Past or present? Past. It's different than the King James, huh? It was producing death in me, though uh, through what is good. Is that accurate or inaccurate according to the Greek? It's inaccurate. But it's trying to be accurate theologically. Because Paul said there was a time when I was what? Alive. And then what happened? Death. And then I became aware of the law. And what happened? I what? Died. Past tense. So when Paul's talking about death being produced in him, he's talking about when he died spiritually before. Not talking about right now. Do you think Paul was saying, well, I'm dying spiritually right now? Yes or no? No, Paul's alive spiritually to live as Christ, amen? But he's just being vivid. He's using a historical present. In fact, I thought, I looked at different places. Uh, I looked at a lot of translations where the, where different translations use the past for what's really present tense in the Greek. In chapter seven, verse 13, the same place we just read. The Amplified Bible says this, was producing, was producing death in me. It's not, it says it's, it is presenting death in me because he's making it vivid what happened when he died. The Christian Standard Bible and also the Holman Christian Standard Bible both have this, was producing death in me uh, through that which is good. A faithful version, and I'm not saying it's a faithful version, that's the name of this version, it's called a faithful version. Now then, did that which is good become death to me? May it never be, but sin, in order that it might truly be exposed as sin in me by that which is good, was working out death, was. There it is again. The NIV, if you have the NIV, nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used, past tense, it used, past, uh, that which was good to bring about death, uh, bring about my death. All these translations I'm reading from at this point, they all translate it as a past tense experience. But guess what? Paul's not how Paul describes it. He describes it as though it's happening when you're reading it. But guess what? It was a past tense experience. He already died spiritually. He's not dying as he's talking spiritually. He's just using, I'm just saying, here's a real clear example. I belabored the point for five minutes for a reason with all these translations to get you to understand that right here in Romans chapter seven, verse 13, scholars know that Paul is using a historical present. And they even translate it that way. And they translate away from it to point back to his death that already happened because they know, they don't want readers to be confused, some of the translators. And yeah, there are a lot of readers that are confused. Oh, wow, look what Paul's going through later. Wow, he's still under the law somehow. He went back under the law. No, he didn't. Somehow he's under the law again. No, no, that was when he was, he's talking about his past. It's a historical present. Okay. In fact, look at 7-9. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came to life, and I what? I died. That verb is in the aorist. In the Greek, we say, our, when you talk about the Greek language, you say aorist, but it's the same thing. It's past. That's the past tense verb. Look at verse 11. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, what? Killed me. Okay. That's a, uh, in, that's a uh, aorist active indicative. Killed me. It's speaking of a completed past event. When Paul said he, was, he died, when Paul said he was killed by a law, it's a completed past event. He's not dying later when he's talking in verse 13. He's just talking that way as a historical present. Do you understand that? He's just making it more vivid so we can say, wow, he's just making it alive to look at what I went through. So we can realize he wants the Jews to understand. This is why he's so vivid with this. He brings it into the present. He wants the Jews to understand, look what's going on. 
This is what the law does to us. This is what I went through. It just makes it very vivid. But he's talking about when he was under the law, when he was spiritually dead, when he was enslaved to sin, when he was under the law of sin and death. But when he came to Christ, thanks be to Jesus, wretched man that I am, when he was under the law, at the end of the chapter, he's set free by Jesus, wretched man that I am, who will save you from this body of death. The Lord Jesus saves him. Thanks be to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says in Romans chapter 8, the first couple of verses, that he's now been set free from the law of sin and death by what? The law of life and the spirit. That's where we're at now after we come to Christ. Are you still with me? Praise the Lord. Okay. Now, if you go to 7-7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. This is a controlling verse, guys, right here. When I said earlier, the commandment that he says in the singular that he broke, he's discussing is coveting. He can use anyone that apply to you, but he's using this particular one. So then when you get to, uh, for instance, verse 12, he says, so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy. That's singular, the commandment, thou shalt not covet. He's talking about he lost to that commandment and he killed him. And righteous and good. Verse 13, therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. He's talking about the past death he just referenced twice. Even though he starts speaking in the present tense. He's not saying he died right now. May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to me uh, to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good. So even though he speaks in the present tense, he's speaking of what happened when. We know it. The past. Understand? It's just so clear. In fact, pick it up at verse 19. For the good that I want, I do not do, because he doesn't want to covet. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. He's talking about the coveting and what happened to him when he was under the law. Then Jesus set him free. Now, I think it's interesting. Let me give you a few examples where Paul uses the historical present in other writings. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10.30, If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning for that for which I give thanks? He's writing in the present tense for effect. In 1 Corinthians 13, everybody's familiar with this one, verses 2 and 13 through 3, he says, if I have the gift of prophecy, you hear this at weddings, right? And I know all mysteries and have all knowledge. It's all in the present tense, by the way. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Now, Paul isn't saying, hey, I'm an unloving guy. I'm a noisy gong. He's not saying that. Oh, look at what Paul says about it. No, he's speaking hypothetically. With a, he's speaking with a historical present. Romans 7, Romans, in Romans, he does it earlier, chapter 3, verse 7. But if through my lie, the truth of God is abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? It's not in present tense. But he's not saying he's a liar. He's being hypothetical here. Okay. He's no more a liar in Romans 3, 7 as, he, as he's no more a liar there as he is a lawbreaker in rebellion to God in Romans 7 because it's, it's an effect. In Galatians 2, 18, Paul speaks in the first person, present tense verb, hypothetically to highlight. Uh, well, listen to what he says. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Paul's not a transgressor. He's being hypothetical in the present tense. Okay, you know what? Over 40 times, if you go through the Gospels, it says, Jesus says, 
Do you know over 40 times when you're reading the Gospels, when it says Jesus says, it's in the present tense, as though it's happening right when you're reading? So when you're reading, Jesus says, in the King James, Jesus saith, right? They're, they're, it's denoting the present tense, because the Greek does that a lot, for effect. Because it's bringing it right before you. Wow, Jesus is saying this. But you know, did Jesus, when you read that, was Jesus just saying it right when you read it? Yes or no? No, he said it 2,000 years ago. Okay. Give you an example. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 7, you know, it says, And Jesus says unto him, in the Greek, Kai lege ato ha iesus, you know. And guess what? It's in the present tense. And Jesus saith, present, indicative, active to him. I've, 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 I, I having come will heal him. I having come, I'm here. And it's like, it's in the present tense. So, I could give other examples. But do you think the point's well proven? Especially when you look at le- last Sunday's message, right? And as I said, most Pauline scholars that study Paul, not that that matters because when you hear, most scholars believe you can't just say, oh, well, it must be. Don't ever do that. But, when, it's a, when, it's a, uh, when there's no skin in the game and most scholars believe something and there is a lot of skin in this game, the other way, a lot of people want to believe they can just do what they want and base it on Romans 7. But most scholars that are Pauline, whether they have that proclivity or not in their personal life, they say, nah, Paul is definitely not talking about his life as a Christian there. So when you get to Romans 8, like Romans 6, and unlike Romans 7, in Romans 6 and 8, there's total what? Victory. Amen. In fact, look at Romans 8, 12, and 13. We want to have victory now. How do we get victory over that? Well, for one thing, we're not under the law of sin and death anymore. Amen. If you're under the law of Moses, you're in the law of sin and death, man. You're doomed. You're under the old covenant. No one can be justified by the law, Paul says clearly. Read Galatians. Amen. Read Colossians. Read the book of Hebrews. Read Romans 6 or read Romans chapter 1 through 16. We've been set free from that law. We are now under the law of Christ. Galatians chapter 6, the first few verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 says that we're under the law of Christ now. We're not under the law of Moses. Okay? It's just like if somebody tried to arrest you for breaking the law before Independence Day, or before, I should say, we became a nation, right? And before the Constitution was given out. And they try to give you, and they say, man, you know what? There's this law. Oh, for instance, there's a law, I've told you, it's still on the books too, that a woman's not allowed to drive a car unless her husband has a red flag and is 20 foot in front of her, waving it, okay? Now, that law I don't think is enforced anymore, okay? But what if you got arrested for that law today and they went to court? Would you win or lose here in California? You'd lose. No, you'd win, right? Unless you're representing the state and you're, you know, the DA, I guess. But if you got arrested because you were with your car away from the car and something get pulled over, hey, man, you're supposed to be in front of the car, like 20 steps or whatever it is. You're going to jail, man. You'd win. Because that law doesn't apply to us. Just the same with the law of Moses. We have never been given as Gentile believers the law of Moses. Amen? We're under the new covenant. We're not under the old covenant. So don't let people tell you, you have to keep the Sabbath. You can't eat pork, you know? all these different things. Now, but now that we've been set free in Christ, now if you don't want to eat pork because you think it's not good for you, that's another thing. But don't put people under the law. Read 1 Timothy chapter 4. But here's the deal. Guess what? As Christians, we still have a struggle with our flesh. Amen? 
There are those who go to the other extreme and say, oh, Christians are sinless now. You know? And they would agree with us on Romans 7, but then they go to the extreme and say, yeah, we can be totally and absolutely sinless. Show me a person who says they're sinless, and I'll tell you someone who's lying, unless you're pointing to God. Amen, Jesus, you know? Holy angels that never fell. Because the Bible says he who says he's without sin is what? A liar, and the truth is not in him. So we still have a battle as Christians. We still have that old man. You wake up in the morning, and guess what you're attached to? Guess what's there with you? Your flesh. Jesus has two natures, amen? He's both God and what? Man. Guess what? You have two natures. You have a new nature where Christ lives in you, the hope of glory. If you've been born again and received Christ as your Lord and Savior, he lives in you. But you also have your old fleshly nature, amen? That nature that wants you to do your own thing. That nature that just wants to lay in bed all day and eat bonbons or whatever it is. Or just rebel and just do your own thing. And wants to be rebellious. And Jesus said to become a Christian, you must what? Take up your cross, right? That's, you get on the cross, that's like the lecture chair today, right? You must get, take up your cross, I mean die to yourself. You must take up your cross, he says, deny yourself daily, he says, and follow me, amen? So when we first come to Christ, we're saying, hey, it's no longer about me being on the throne. It's Christ enthroned in my heart now, amen? But guess what? When we first come to him, he draws us by his spirit. His Holy Spirit's at work right from the get-go. Before we even get saved, the Holy Spirit's convicting us of sin, amen? We call that prevenient grace. Before we even come to Christ, God is drawing us. Now, we can shut his voice out and say, no, I'll do my own thing, man. I'm going to continue to live like a selfish pig. I don't want to hear you, God, or anything that God think of the Lord will do my own thing. Woo, then you're in trouble, man. That's a lot of people. But if you say, man, you know what? Deep down, I know I'm not right. I need to get right, man. I need forgiveness. And then the Holy Spirit draws us. Jesus said, nobody come to me unless the Father draws him, amen? So he draws us by his Spirit, and he empowers us and strengthens us and encourages us and woos us. The grace of God that brings salvation appears to all men, it says in Titus chapter 2. Amen. And then the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and of righteousness of judgment. We cry out, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner, a wretched man that I am. Both two different prayers, right? We cry out to God, have mercy on me. He meets us there because he died to save us. He's waiting for you. The Holy Spirit's actively working on you. That's so beautiful, isn't it? Then we surrender to him. Then he comes to live in us. We're forgiven of our sins through faith in Christ, his death for our sins, his resurrection. Amen. Then what happens? We rise again spiritually. We, have, we experience a spiritual resurrection, physical resurrections later. We're born again. The Holy Spirit lives in us now. Now the flesh says, I don't want you to be submitted to God. I want you to do your own thing. You have to deny your flesh daily. But praise the Lord, in Romans 7, Paul's doing it alone, right? It's just Paul against the law. Now it's not you and me against the law, right? It's you and me, walk, we're saved by grace through what? faith. It's not by works like the Old Testament. A lot of folks in the Old Testament try to be saved by their works. Even in the Old Testament times, you're really saved through faith, by the way. Just read Romans, just read Hebrews chapter 11. But a lot of them just got on this law, like I keep the law to be saved, but they couldn't keep God's law. But they weren't looking to Messiah, so they were doomed. The law pointed to Messiah. But guess what? We now, by faith in Jesus, the Son of God, we have the power to live a godly life. Because it's no longer us trying to keep God's, the law of Moses, Amen. It's us now surrendering to Christ through faith, allowing him to empower us to live the Christian life. You cannot live the Christian life. You can't by yourself, amen? Because Jesus said, apart from me, you could do what? 
nothing. But in 3.12 of Philippians, he said, Paul said that through him we could do what? All things. We do it by his power now. So look at Romans chapter 8, verse 12 and 13. So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Romans, six, he was lead, uh, Romans 7, he was living according to the flesh, wasn't he? So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must what? Die. But if, this is the key, but if by the Spirit, meaning the power of the Holy Spirit, you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will what? You will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. So he expects, Romans 7, there was no victory. Now that we've been set free from the law of sin and death, Romans 7, by the law of life and spirit, Romans 8, we now could have victory. I mean, I'm, hopefully it's true with you. I'm a totally different person than I was before I was saved. Ask my mom. She's probably the best witness, right? She saw when I was alive. Sweet little baby. I don't know if I was ever a sweet little baby, mom. But uh, I died, right? I, the commandment came. Thou shalt not covet whatever, whatever the commandments I could break. Man, I was in the backyard in the digging place, knowing I shouldn't be doing that, playing with fire. Thank God I didn't burn your house down. Just, and that was just a little tiny boy. And man, that was just, from there on out, man, it was horrible. I was a t- terrible kid. Uh, deep down, I want to do what's right on some, some levels, but I was in bondage to sin. But then I got born again, and my life changed. Now, you know what? I don't want to, I don't look at people, the way I look at people now is I just want to love them. If they're believers, I want to just, hey, bro, I just want to give them a hug. Encourage them in Christ, amen? If they're not a believer, I want to see them come to Jesus, amen? Doesn't mean you don't struggle though, okay? Because guess what? The flesh is still there. But you have to deny the flesh. And you do that by the power of who? The Holy Spirit. There is still a battle. Okay, this is why it gets tricky. Because Paul writes the present tense in Romans 7, because people don't understand it when they read it, and they get it out of context, and because guess what? We all struggle with sin, so when you read Romans 7, it's very easy to misunderstand it. So you want to have grace on people that misunderstand it too, amen? However, the battle that we are in is not Romans 7. That's somebody who is under the what? Under the law, without the what? The Holy Spirit, amen? We are in a different battle, and that is, and turn there quickly, in Galatians chapter 5. Paul makes it very clear, the battle that we're in. Galatians chapter 5. Verse 16, or verse 17. For the flesh sets its desire, what? Against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Wow. Now this is the battle we're in, guys. This is written to believers who are new covenant believers, who are under the law of Christ, chapter six, talks about the law of Christ, who are not under the law, the beginning of chapter five. In fact, look at chapter five, verse one. For it was for freedom that Christ set us free. These he's writing to people who are free in Christ. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Talk about not, don't go back to the law of Moses. Look what he says, verse two. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to everyone who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to what? Keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ. You who are 
seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. What he's talking about there, don't think, oh no, I've been circumcised, I'm in trouble. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about people who've been saved by God's grace. They're trusting Christ. They're not Jews I'm not a, and Gentiles. I'm not under the law of Moses anymore. I'm under the law of Christ. I'm under the new covenant. I'm following the law of Christ. And then guess what? The Judaizers come in and say, yeah, but if you really want to be right with God, you have to keep the law of Moses. You have to keep the Sabbath. You have to keep the festivals. You have to, you know, you can't eat pork. You have to be circumcised. You have to keep the Jewish calendar. I mean, you can look at chapter four, verses nine and 10. He talks about, I'm afraid of you because you'll start to keep all those things. And he says, you're, guess what? If you're going to try to go back to plan A, the law to be saved, you got to keep the whole enchilada. Paul says in Galatians chapter three, curses everyone who does not continue to keep all the law. If you're under the law, you got to keep the whole burrito. You got to do it all. But nobody can. Whole enchilada. How do you say that, man? I'm, I'm, I must be hungry, man. I'm at Mexican food. I'm just getting my... But anyway... Guess what? You're doomed. You're in trouble. You're, you know, so you stay free. He says, stand fast. The freedom worth Christ has set you free. Don't be entangled again in the yoke of bondage. Chapter five, verse one. Sorry, that's King James. I've memorized. So you got to, so stay free. But guess what? He's saying, yeah, you're not in the law of Moses. Don't worry about going back to it. But guess what? He says, that doesn't mean there's not a battle. You're in the battle between your flesh and what? The Holy Spirit who lives in you. I'm glad for that battle because I still have a choice. And under the law, we'd just be <laughs> defeated, doomed, amen? But now I'm in another battle, and I can choose to be victorious in that battle by simply choosing Jesus and making him first in my life, amen? Because he says here, there's that battle, verse 17. Then he says in verse, uh, between the law, the spirit and the flesh, the flesh and the spirit. But if you're led by the spirit, you are not what? Under the law. So if I'm following the Holy Spirit, I'm under the new covenant, amen? I'm not under the law. But if I reject the gospel and the leading of the Holy Spirit, then I'm going back to the law again. He says in verse 19, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That was Paul in Romans 7 before he got saved. But the fruit of the Spirit is what? Verse 22. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now look at verse 24. It's key. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have what? Crucified the flesh with its what? Passions and desires. That means, guess what? If you have, if you have come to Christ, truly come to Christ, all those passions to do evil... You put them on a cross, man. You said, no, I died with Christ on the, when he died on the cross. And I'm taking up my cross right now. And I'm penning all those desires and all those things. They're dead on that cross. I'm not living according to those dictates. Because Jesus said, if you want to become my follower, you must what? Deny yourself daily. Take up your cross and follow me. So that's what a Christian, that's the, the, the find a Christian here. This is not the definition of a Christian today. That's popular. Here, he defines a Christian. Now, those who belong to Christ, Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passion and desires. That's a true Christian. Amen? Or 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone be in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, old things have passed away and all things become new. That's a Christian. Today, a new Christian is, I went up to the altar call and said a prayer. And then they just live however they want. And they claim to be a Christian. But they have never crucified the flesh. They've never taken up the cross. They're not following Jesus. That's a huge deception that's out there. And then when you say, hey, man. 
You're beating your wife or you're cheating on your wife and you're claiming to be a Christian. You go to church on Sunday and you even talk about Jesus at work. Well, hey, you, you know, see what Paul said? Things I don't want to do, I do. And things I do want to do, I don't. No, that's me. That's, all. That's, that's Paul too. Wrong. And they just throw all the commandments out on the new covenant. No, we are in a battle still. But the battle is the flesh against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. But we can have victory over the flesh by simply pending the flesh to a cross. Amen? Recognizing that Jesus already died for us. He rose again. We died with him and we're alive to him now. And th- guess what? When I start at verse 17, for the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, right? But guess what? Back up to verse 13 because he tells you how to get the victory there as well. Back up a few more verses. Verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, what? Serve one another. You want to be on fire for Jesus, man? You want to have victory over the flesh, victory over the flesh nature? Guess what? Serve one another, man. Because the Holy Spirit, the heartbeat of the Holy Spirit is to, for us to love God with the whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Amen? To love our neighbors self. Amen? To be a blessing to one another. So as we serve one another in the name of Jesus, guess what? We get spiritual victory. Because when you're walking in the Spirit and doing the things of the Holy Spirit, you're not fulfilling what? The things of the flesh. In fact, look what he goes on to say. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In the statement, you shall love your neighbor as your what? Self. So now he's talking about not the whole law. Well, yes, the whole law of Moses would apply to this too. But now he says the law of Christ. This is the law of Christ. Because the moral law of God never changes. Okay? It's always wrong to go around murdering people. It's always wrong to go around ripping people off. That's something people are born with. We have a conscience. We know deep down when you're, when you're just a little guy and you've never heard of the law, you know if somebody goes and beats somebody else up and takes all their money, intuitively you know that's wrong because you have a conscience, amen? Law of God's written in our hearts. So Paul is talking about, guess what? He's saying, he's not preaching liberty, uh, license. He's not being a libertine saying, oh, we can just do what thou wilt. We do whatever we want. No, he's saying, guess what? We still have a law of love, the law of Christ, amen? Jesus says, love one another as I've loved you. I give you a new commandment. Love one another as I've loved you. Amen? And then look what verse 15 says. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Verse 16. This is a key verse. But I say, what? Walk by the Spirit and you will not, what? Carry out the desire of the flesh. In Romans 7, there's no mention of Paul having the strength of the Spirit. As Christians, we now, until you get to Romans 8, now we have the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? How do we overcome that battle between the flesh and the Spirit? We what? We crucify, verse 24. Let's read it again. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have what? Crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. You crucify the flesh. You say, nope, you're dead. I'm not listening to you anymore. I've got a new master. Amen? Jesus. And then what do you do? Verse 16. You walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. In other words, you do the leading, you, you follow the lead of the Holy Spirit. And it gives you a little idea what that means. To love one another. To serve each other. Amen? And as you read the scripture, you learn what it means to walk in the Spirit. He says in, Rome, in Galatians 2, to be led by the Spirit. Amen? Or to walk there is translated in the Greek, keep in step with the Spirit. So if you're born again, the Holy Spirit lives in you. And now you have the power because God is the one who created the universe. That God lives in you. And in Ephesians and in Romans 8. In Romans 8, he says that this, the same power that rose Christ from the dead gives you power in your mortal body. So the one who created the universe, the one who rose Christ from the dead is the one who lives in you and certainly you can overcome coveting now. Amen? You don't have to take something that doesn't belong to you. Amen? 
whether it be something that is a possession that's shiny or a gadget or whether it's a beautiful woman that's not your wife or whoever, you can say, no, that's not me anymore. Amen? And I love Romans because guess what? We have, we, we're done with the old man, amen, in Romans. He's been crucified, amen? We're done with the old master. He's no longer enthroned, the law of Moses. And we're done with the old mate, okay? We're married to the law, amen? We've been set free. And now we have a new relationship, and it's with Christ Jesus who gives us victory over the law of sin and death by the law of life and the, the spirit. Amen? I mean, you know, I'm going to be honest with you. I wanted to spend the next hour talking about how to have victory over the flesh, but that'll be a study down the line, okay, where we'll just really get into a lot of verses on that. Sound good? Okay. Did that make sense? Okay. If it, did, if it made sense, you're like, man, I wish it was more crystallized. Get the first message. That was such a clear message on this subject. But they go together, really. Can we all stand?